Well, our confessional reading, which we'll look to in a moment, is uh, the third and fourth head of the Canons of Dort, Articles 7 and 8. But first, I'd like to read with you Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. Here the Lord calls out to his people, reminding them. Now, remember the context. In Isaiah, this section of Isaiah, God is comforting his people. And just shortly before that, we have what's sometimes known as the song of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, it talks about how God would send his servant who would endure all sorts of suffering and hardship and trial for the sake of those whom God would save, right? And then Isaiah 54 talks about God's covenant of peace with his people. But that's sort of corporate, isn't it? And so with chapter 55, he gets very personal. And God, through the prophet, speaks to his people, imploring them to trust him, to come to him, to believe his word themselves. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. Now in the light of that earnest call from God. Articles 7 and 8 in this section of the canons tell us that in the Old Testament, God revealed this secret will of his to a small number. In the New Testament, now without any distinction between peoples, he discloses it to a large number. The reason for this difference must not be ascribed to the greater worth of one nation over another or to a better use of the light of nature. 
but to the free, good pleasure, and undeserved love of God. Therefore, those who receive so much grace beyond and in spite of all that they deserve ought to acknowledge it with humble and thankful hearts. And on the other hand, with the apostle, they ought to adore, but certainly not inquisitively search into, the severity and justice of God's judgments on the others who do not receive this grace. Nevertheless, all who are called through the gospel are called seriously. For seriously and most genuinely, God makes known in his word what is pleasing to him, that those who are called should come to him. Seriously, he also promises rest for their souls and eternal life to all who come to him and believe. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, the message of our text today should not be unfamiliar to us. In fact, we covered territory quite similar to it back in November, toward the beginning of this sermon series. We considered together how God employs the proclamation of His Word to rescue sinful men. Our focus at that time was God's sovereignty in sending the word that saves us. God accomplishes his purpose to deliver the elect by sending his word of promise to them. And today we consider a very similar point of doctrine. Thinking on how God determines when and where and how his word is proclaimed and how that gospel brings assurance of his saving promises. It's a similar message, but it's different in an important way. Because in that earlier section of the canons, the focus was almost exclusively on God. His decision to choose certain men, his action to save them through the preaching of the gospel. Whereas here, the focus shifts a bit more to the people. How men encounter God's message of life. How unworthy those men are. And what the calling is upon those men when the gospel comes to them. Here the focus is on men who, by God's power and according to God's mercy, encounter the message of life in Christ. And that's essential for us to consider. Because this is life. This is how we come into life. To be sure, we need to consider that bigger picture. We need to consider how preaching relates to election. But we also need to recognize the significance of what God is doing when He brings the ministry of the Word before us. What is it that He is accomplishing here? What is it that He intends here? And how are we to respond when we encounter that Word? We need to know how our experience actually corresponds to those greater theological concepts. And then we need to think carefully about how we're called to respond. So this evening, we take time to consider how men encounter the gospel. And they do so according to God's good decree. That's our theme. Men encounter the gospel according to God's good decree. And the first thing we see about man's encounter with the gospel is that the gospel is a message spread with the sovereign purposes of God. Remember what we saw last week about the knowledge of God which men encounter. We saw then that men know about God, all men know about God by the light of nature. And our confession, our canons, described that light of nature very uh, biblically and carefully 
as involving three things. The evidence that reveals God, which is built into the very creation. The way God restrains sin through the authorities He sets over us. And then the knowledge of God and His law, which He sets within us by, by means of our conscience. All of these, the conscience, the restraint of sin by the authorities, and the evidence of God in the creation. All of these shine a light before our hearts and minds, revealing the truth to us about the reality of God, calling us to serve God as our Creator and King, showing us the folly of ignoring God. That light shines brightly before every person who lives, and yet, in their sin, they're blinded, even to this overwhelming light. They see it, but they explain it away. They refuse to acknowledge its truth. And therefore, they reject the God whom that light reveals. We see it so powerfully today in our culture, don't we? How many men are devoted and how their voice has been magnified by the internet to explaining away the evidence of God that surrounds us. Men who winsomely speak to our young people. And try to demonstrate to them how the beauty of the world in all of its design, in all of its patterns, was an accident. That it has no purpose, it has no goal, it has no overarching king who leads it. And they seek to show that man, though he is an accident, is a glorious accident who rules over all things, thereby replacing God with man. That's how blind, sinful man is to God. Surrounded on every side and even within by the light that reveals God, they devote themselves, they devote their all, they even use the gifts God has given to seeking to deny the reality of God. So if we are to call upon God, if we're to have the help that He alone can provide, God's the one who has to draw us, right? We noted in considering Article 6 from this section of the canons that God Himself does what neither the testimony of nature nor the law is able to do. He reveals Himself to us so that we might escape our misery. And He does that by His Word and by His Spirit. His Word is the Gospel. It's the proclamation of Jesus, who He is, what He has done, and what the results of His work are. And the Spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit within us that allows us to understand the truth of the gospel and allows us to receive it by a living faith. Both of these are necessary, Word and Spirit. And by God's grace, they are effective. We heard the assurance of Isaiah 55, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Always, the Word of God, applied by the Spirit, accomplishes what God desires. And that Word is sovereignly directed by God. Before the time of Jesus, the Word and the Spirit were sent to exceedingly few people. We heard in our, assur or our call to worship this morning, Psalm 147. 
He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He's not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Now today, Jacob and Israel is the church. But when that psalm was written, it was quite literally one nation out of all the rest. God limited the proclamation of his word and the influence of his spirit to that one little nation because Jesus had not yet come. The work of salvation had not yet been accomplished. All the other nations were given over to the service of Satan, were, were really enslaved to satanic power. And the truth of the gospel came only to Israel. But then, but then, Jesus came. He completed his work. And he gave us the great commission. The calling to go and make disciples out of all the nations. Satan was restrained so that he might no longer deceive all the nations. He's still active, he's still hunting, but he's not authoritative over the nations. And so now, now the gospel goes out into all lands. Now the gospel goes out in every direction. And that's what God promised all the way back when Isaiah was ministering. Verse 5 of Isaiah 55, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. He gave to Israel the privilege, which was manifested in the apostles and the disciples, to take the truth of what God had done in bringing His Son, and to take that out to all the nations. And so in... The Gospels, we hear that call. Mark 16. Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. What a blessing. The, the calling that had come only to Israel, the, the promise and the blessing that had come only to the covenant people of God from that one family, suddenly now it's going out by that family to all the world. Men of Samaria and Syria, of Greece and of Egypt, of Rome and beyond, men of every land and background and race and nationality suddenly are hearing the word of what God has done to deliver His people. Only after, only after Jesus provided for their deliverance. And yet even then, the gospel doesn't come to every individual, does it? Even in modern day America, which is so saturated in some ways with churches... Where the gospel seems to be known so broadly, there are multitudes and increasing numbers, in fact, of people who have never heard who Jesus really is and what he's done and why he's necessary. And we want to know why. I mean, they can't have life unless they hear the gospel. They have no chance of turning to Christ unless God, by his spirit, works in their hearts. So we want to know why. Why does God send a flood to one region and a famine to another? Why does God send perfect health to this place and a pandemic to that place? Why does he call multitudes in this family to know and serve Christ while those in that family die for their lack of knowledge? Why? And you know what God says to us? God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We want to know, perhaps, why God sends the gospel here but not there. He tells us, trust me, 
I will send it where I will send it, and I will accomplish my purposes with it. Note well the warning spoken in Article 7 from the canons. We are to adore, but certainly not inquisitively search into the severity and justice of God's judgments. In other words, we, needn't, we must not second-guess our God. There are times that we're tempted to do that. When folks seem so nice and yet they reject the gospel. Or when we learn of those who live their whole lives without encountering the message of Christ. We want a reason for that. But rather than give us a reason, God reminds us every single person deserves his wrath. Because everyone is without excuse. The, the world, in all of its beauty and glory, in all of its perfect order, reminds them that God exists. Their own conscience testifying to the unshakable reality of the morality that God has put within us. The governments that he sets over us so that we're not so terrible that we utterly an annihilate one another. All testify that God exists. None of us is worthy. We all deserve God's wrath. And therefore, we need to receive the gospel with humility. There is no room, children hear this, there is no room for pride at the fact that we have turned to Christ. Left to ourselves, we would not. We would ignore the message. We would refuse to worship God. We would utterly reject the call to faith. Every single one of us. It's only because God in His sovereign grace ordained that we should hear the word and sent the gospel or sent the Spirit to soften our hearts, to open our minds, and to cause us to embrace Christ by a living faith. That is the only reason that we can come to Christ. And so we must bow before him in gratitude, recognizing that we don't deserve it, that no one deserves that mercy, but that he sent it anyway. So we have to adore him, and we have to give him thanks. And in fact, we ought to stand in awe that he would love the likes of us. I mean, think of your sins, think of your stubbornness, think of your foolishness. And then stand in awe that he would choose to set that message of life before you. And of course it should go without saying that we ought not to regard the gospel lightly. It should go without saying, but it can't. Because to our shame, men do. Many of us have taken the gospel lightly. And so we need to consider also not only how the message is sent with the sovereign purposes of God but also how it reveals the serious promises of our God. There are at least, at least two ways in which men take the gospel lightly. One way is by regarding it with suspicion. They don't trust the word of the Lord. They try to poke holes in the account. They cast doubt upon it perhaps by the use of science or by the use of philosophy. And I think that's a somewhat natural uh, response to those who especially have grown up outside the church, outside of the gospel and the people upon whom it's had its effect. Because if you live among unbelievers, man, everybody's got an angle. 
The Catechism reminds us that of ourselves we naturally hate God and hate our neighbor. And if everyone around you is given over to that, you get pretty skeptical pretty fast. You start asking who, what, what everyone's angle is, what their purpose is, what their goal is, what they want from you. And so they hear the gospel and it sounds way too good to be true and they treat it with skepticism. I don't think that's our temptation. I think our temptation is to treat it with scorn. To treat it as something common. You know, growing up out in the country, I didn't recognize the blessing and the privilege it was to be able to just get up and go. Take a five-mile walk out in the woods. Or go out back and shoot guns. Or ride loud equipment around at any hour of the day or night. We just did it. We didn't think of what a blessing it was, right? You live in the city and you realize that neighbors get really annoyed when you do things like that. And that there's, there's all kinds of dangers around you. You can't just go walk wherever you want to go. Well, we have grown up, many of us, with the gospel with the proclamation of God's word, with the declaration of his promises of life. And because we've heard them since we were babes in arms, they seem commonplace. And we're tempted to scorn them because we've always had them. But I'm here to tell you, they're not common. They're not something to be taken lightly. And it's actually a sin to fail to stand in awe of the promise of the gospel that God sets before us. In the history of mankind, there has never been a message so powerful. There has never been a word so valuable. The gospel comes to us as the invitation to a feast. It offers, it offers that we come and gorge ourselves on that which will give life. The Lord urges us, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying... You have a hunger within you, young people. You are surrounded by this. Look on, I guess I'm not recommending that you do, but you see it anyway on TikTok and on all the other social media. You see these people who are desperate for something meaningful, for some kind of adventure, for some kind of meaningful triumph, for some kind of fun, for something that will make a name for them. There are, it's a hunger. It's built into us. We want something bigger than us. We want something that will last forever. Solomon talked about it in Ecclesiastes. He said, I, I looked at life. I saw how quickly it vanishes. And so I sought something to make sense of it all, something to make it all worthwhile. So he tried building things making a name for himself by the stuff that he could create. He sought learning, studying all the great philosophers of his age. He sought experience, 
thrills. None of it mattered. None of it lasted. None of it stuck. We have that hunger within us and God is the only one who provides the food that will satisfy and it comes in the form of the gospel. He who invites us, our host, he's no mere man whose word we could justifiably question. No, this offer comes to us, says Isaiah 45, by the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other, he says. Can we doubt the word of the one who made us? Can we doubt that him who formed us and designed us from the very start knows exactly what we need and how we need it? And he sends us, he sends us precisely what mankind craves. Romans 1 verse 16, he says, uh, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And there is no other message that even compares. Nothing that men have spoken in all of history, nothing that they have spoken across this whole spectrum of humanity. We must not view that message as common or as something of which we should be skeptical. The words of mere men, yes, regard those with skepticism. Children, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is if it's spoken by mere men. We should expect sinful men to lie, to embellish the truth, to try to oversell things. But the message of the gospel is radically different. God speaks with the authority of the one who rules over all things, who makes all things, who ordains all that comes to pass. And he's the one who says to us, incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love. And so he invites us, assuring us of his nearness, extending to us the offer of life without end. Do not fail to see the glory and the beauty of that message. Your God, though you are a mere creature with no claim on Him, with no ability to hold Him accountable, He reaches out to you and He offers to have a relationship, in fact, to adopt you as his beloved children. And he speaks with authority, swearing by himself because there is no one greater, staking his reputation on the gospel he offers. How dare we doubt that? How dare we question that or insist that God bow to our investigation? We must not. And look at what he offers. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. How can we think of refusing that? He not only offers but he commands us. Come you who thirst. Incline your ear and come to me. Seek the Lord. Call upon him. How dare we neglect so great a message, so great an offer, so powerful a command from the one who made us and who knows exactly what will satisfy the hunger within us. To reject that offer, it's not only a terrible loss, and it is. It's far, 
far greater a loss than if somebody set a treasure before you and said, all you need to do is take it. No, this is the treasure of life eternal. This is the treasure of becoming an heir of all the creation alongside of Jesus Christ, your older brother. That is an amazing offer that we must not walk away from. But more than that, it would be a great offense to say, no, I don't want the gift of exactly what I need. I don't want the gift of becoming all that I was created to be. I don't want to give you the glory and the honor that you alone deserve. Therefore, brothers and sisters, when we encounter that gospel offer, and I know I'm addressing the young people a lot, but it wasn't that long ago. And I remember how focused we can get on the here and now, on the right at this moment, on the thrill of the instant. That we don't look at what What's coming, we don't look at what's waiting out there, but we must. God calls us not to be skeptical, but also not to take lightly this amazing offer that He sets before us. I mean, think of what He promises. We live in a world that is broken. Our youngest children understand that. They get sick and their bodies feel absolutely horrific. And they think it can't be that this is how it was made to be, right? Or somebody they really care about betrays them and they're hurt to the very core and they think this is wrong. How can life be this way? That's all the effect of the fall. That's all the effect of sin. But look at what the gospel promises. Not only does God offer to fill us with that which will satisfy, not only does He offer to forgive our sin and reconcile us to Him, but He offers to reverse the effects of the fall itself. Look at the end of our Our scripture from Isaiah 55, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. What are the thorn and the briar? They're the immediate effects of the fall. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit in the garden, the place that he was to cultivate and till and cause to flourish to God's glory, God said no longer will it be a joy, no longer will it be an easy thing. But now the soil will produce thorns and briars, thistles. And you will eat your bread by the sweat of your brow. All of a sudden that which was made to be satisfying and uplifting and encouraging, now it's going to be toil, it's going to be hard, it's going to be painful. And now God says through the gospel, it's going to be reversed. The thorn will be replaced by the beautiful cypress. The briar will be displaced by the fruitful myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that will not be cut off all of the sin that defiled your soul all of the tears that have stained your cheeks all of the temptations that have led your feet astray all of the darkness that has obscured your heart he offers to utterly annihilate and remove all of it and to replace it with his blessing with his holiness with his joy with his satisfaction with his comfort with his presence and from you he requires nothing except to trust in Christ. No contribution to earn your way, no payment plan. All you must do is believe His promise, trust His Son, and live in response. Last Sunday evening, we were blessed to see how certain and sure God's promise is. The salvation you need. And it includes all of that. 
It includes forgiveness of sin. It includes the overturning of all the effects of the fall. It includes the drying of our tears and the encouraging of our hearts. And it's all encapsulated, it's all summarized by the the filthiness, by the unholiness that attends to us while we live in our sin. And he causes a little baby to come up. A child that still doesn't know his right hand from his left, her left. And he causes us to place water upon her head to demonstrate how though we are filthy, he cleanses us. Though we know nothing, though we can do nothing, he causes it to be done to us. And that promise, that salvation, that glory is just as real as the water that caused Sophia to squirm. That comfort that he offers is just as substantial as a father's strong arm. And therefore, our calling is to trust our Father, to believe his promise, and to receive what he alone can give. Brothers and sisters, our God offers the greatest gift mankind has ever known. He sends it to whom he will when he will, applying it by the sovereign power of his spirit. And he gives us the perfect assurance. He means it. Every word of his promise is seriously spoken and certain to be realized by those who receive it with faith. So let us not scorn it as common. Let us not doubt it with skepticism. But let us trust the creator of heaven and earth who has offered. And we shall receive absolutely, perfectly, and eternally what he alone can provide. To this God be the glory now and evermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, enable us to recognize the greatness of the grace that you pour out upon us every time you cause Christ to be set before us and grant that we might never take lightly this amazing gift, but rather that we might hold firmly to it, delight persistently in it, and give you the glory for having given it. And Lord, we pray that you would spread that life-giving message broadly throughout the world, raising up messengers of the truth to go forth into lands where it has not yet been heard, in languages where it has not yet been spoken, and also locally to people who, though surrounded by evidence of the gospel, have not had their eyes yet opened. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.